But this morning we're going to pick back up in the book of Genesis. Last week uh, we met one of the most important figures in the book and, and indeed in all of the Bible, Abram. And we unpacked perhaps the most significant moment of Abram's life, his calling by God in chapter 12 to leave his family, his homeland, and trust in God's promise of a new land, new family, and blessing by faith. And next week, God is going to confirm that calling with yet another crucial chapter of Scripture, Genesis 15, by formally establishing his covenant with Abraham calling covenant. But this morning, chapters 13 and 14, we might consider kind of like a bridge uh, story connecting those two pivotal events. And there are actually three stories here. Your Bibles might demarcate them with a section header like Abram and Lot separate. Abram rescues Lot. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, respectively. Um, And if we didn't know any better, we might be tempted to treat these three stories as mere filler material whose sole purpose is to simply provide a historical bridge uh, link between chapters 12 and 15. But I see a unifying theme here in these stories and when we recognize it, the real life application of these chapters becomes clear and personal and indispensable for us. I think that Chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis are all about wealth, and specifically what to do with it, how to manage it. Now, before you conclude that this sermon clearly isn't going to be about you because you're not wealthy, let me remind you that just by virtue of the fact that you are watching this sermon right now on a computer or listening to it on your smartphone automatically qualifies you as more materially blessed than the vast majority of people who have ever existed on this planet or currently exist. And before you assume that I'm just another pastor looking for any excuse I can get to ask you for money, well, West Hills must, must be falling behind on its budget, and he's really stretching the text here to make it about money. Let me assure you that I'm not and we're not. West Hills is actually in great shape right now, Uh, as a church financially, and I promise you, I did not go into ministry for the paycheck. And if it was up to me, I frankly would never preach another sermon on money again. But unfortunately, God's word won't allow that because how we use the resources that God has entrusted to us, whether you're convinced you've got far too little of them or you acknowledge you've got lots of them, is a crucial recurring topic all through scripture as Jesus said where your heart is what there where your treasure is sorry what there also your heart will be so how we view and what we do with our wealth and more importantly what it does to us what money does to our hearts is vitally important to God and in Genesis 13 and 14 What we're going to find here is two characters, Abram and Lot, who serve as examples to us, respectively, of how we ought to treat our finances on the one hand, and the character of Abram, and what we must avoid when it comes to money, and the character of Lot. And the text presents their examples in alternating fashion, Abram, Lot, Abram, Lot. And so if you're following along in your bulletin outline, just keep in mind that we'll be bouncing back and forth between the two. But let's begin, as always, by reading the passage together, Genesis chapters 13 through 14. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Hear the word of the Lord. 
So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, (coughs) excuse me, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are all kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, and if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 14 now. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Kedalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, that is, Zor. And all these forces joined in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Belah, that is Zor, went out. They joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedalaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. 
And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habo, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, I pray that someone listening this morning needs to hear this word from your word. God, I pray that I would decrease so that you could increase. God, I pray that even in a sermon about money, you would make much of Jesus, that he would be at the forefront of our minds, that you would draw our attention and affection more to him, our trust and reliance and dependence more on him this morning. For your glory we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, We begin in chapter 13, verse 1, with Abram and his family headed back to Canaan from Egypt. You'll remember uh, when we left off last week, Abram, this exemplar of faith, cracked under pressure. He gave in to faithlessness during a famine uh, in Canaan, and so he sojourned to Egypt where, fearing for his life, he handed over his own wife, Sarai, to become Pharaoh's concubine. But rather than giving up on him and abandoning Abram, God faithfully here leads him back into the promised land. And not only that, God sends him back with his pockets full. God is so gracious and so redemptive, he even turns Abram's failure in chapter 12 into an opportunity to bless him materially. We remember we heard in verse 16, for her, Sarai's sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Kent Hughes, whose commentary I love on Genesis, notes, female donkeys were the ride of choice for the rich, the Lexuses and BMWs of the Nile. The camels, note the plural here, had just been introduced as domesticated animals and were a rarity. They were prestige symbols for show by the very uber-rich, not for utility. So maybe a Bugatti, McLaren. And notice Abram has several now in his garage. So Abram is very rich, verse 2 tells us. And verse 5 clarifies that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, two men, 
both blessed financially by God. And the question is, how will their wealth affect them? For all of us, our money will either turn us into an Abram or into a Lot. We will either, like Abram, become more worshipful. That's verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13. The very first thing that Abram does upon returning to Canaan, he heads back to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't begin by scouting out the best piece of land to support his bounty of new livestock. Abram doesn't search out new trade and investment opportunities to increase his wealth. He doesn't let his newfound material blessings distract him at all from what is most important. He repents of his failure and faithlessness in Egypt, and first things first, he turns back to the Lord in humble worship. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish. Abram is rich, but he knows where his riches came from, and so he turns his eyes heavenward. 1 Timothy 6 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, Abram knows the difference between livelihood and life. Your livelihood is just how you financially support your life. It's not your life. It better not be, or you're in trouble. If you put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, anyone check your investment portfolio lately since COVID hit, your retirement account. Friends, the stock market rises and falls, but there is a future in which we can confidently invest that which is truly life, eternal life, and it never takes a hit. It never has a bad month. Store up treasure there, Jesus says, where moth and rust cannot destroy. Set your hope not on riches, but on God in worship. Or... You can be like Lot, whose riches make him contentious. It's verses 5 through 7. We hear there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and then the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. It's clear from the context, verses 8 and 9, that the problem here isn't with Abram. It's with Lot. Abram says to Lot in verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me. Take your pick of the land, Lot. You get first pick. Go ahead. Abram wasn't acting antagonistic here. The hostility was all coming from Lot. That's many people's response to wealth, isn't it? I mean, you want to guess what married couples fight over more than anything else. It's money. But the really interesting part about that is that on average, the more of it you have, the more likely you are to fight over it. You'd think that arguing would come from being stretched too thin. But in reality, wealthy couples on average fight even more than poor ones because now there's just more money to fight over. Notorious B.I.G. said it best, more money, more problems. Hughes notes, Abram's and Lot's prosperity, rather than pulling them together, 
divided them. We imagine that need and want will divide us, but it's not true. Believers who sense their need will naturally draw close to God and each other. Need produces a a poverty of spirit that reaches up for help and out to one another. But assailed by prosperity, Abram and Lot drew apart. And so Hughes says, we must consider ourselves forewarned as we prosper. Proverbs 28, 25 says, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I can just speak for myself on this one, personal testimony. The most thoroughly unhappy, cantankerous people that I know in the world are often the wealthiest, can literally be spoiled rotten by wealth. And yet I have never met a group of happier, more joyful, content kids in the world than the orphans who I used to visit on my annual mission trips to Guatemala when I was in high school. Money will spoil you rotten if you're not careful. Be instead like Abram. Let it make you more generous. More generous. Look at his response to Lot in verses 8 and 9. He says, is not the whole land before you? Go ahead, separate yourself from it. Take whichever half you want. I'll take the other half. You pick. And Hughes explains, Abram is the older man, as the leader of the faith expedition, the one to whom the promises were made, could have appealed to his position, but he did not. Confident and unthreatened, he was selfless and generous. Abram could have pulled rank. He he could have said, listen, nephew, youngster, has God revealed himself to you lately? God speaking to you? No? Okay, then let me tell you how this is going to go down. He doesn't do that because he's generous. Why? Why is he so generous? Because he believed God's word. God had said to your offspring, I will give this land. And therefore Abram knew that even if he gave the land away a thousand times, it would go to his descendants. He trusted God. Proverbs 21, 26 says, all day long the wicked craves and craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 11, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. Proverbs 11, 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And once again, the real life statistics bear this out. Not only do we find a connection time and time again between generosity and financial success, paradoxically hoarding all of your money isn't even the most effective way to build wealth, but there is an even stronger connection between generosity and gratitude, thanksgiving to God. God loves a cheerful giver, and the two, in fact, go hand in hand. Those who give are, on average, just happier people. Lot, on the other hand, is the very opposite. He's greedy. Verses 10 through 13, 
we hear Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Again, Hughes uh, exposits for us. Dazzled by the ostensible prosperity of Sodom, Lot pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Whereas Abram was living by faith, Lot was living by sight, much as Abram had lived in Egypt. But here's the tragedy. Though Lot was offered a share in the land of Canaan, he rejected it and moved to its very edge, to the end of its border, we hear. His journey east, Hughes says, was a dark echo of the way that Cain had departed. Genesis 19 will reveal that Lot would eventually dwell outside the border of Canaan altogether, outside the promised land, paradise lost again. Why? Because he was chasing riches. And they would lead him as far as Sodom, where he will trade in his tent, his life of humble, nomadic reliance on the Lord, following God's lead for the temptations of big city living. God just isn't enough for Lot anymore. Hebrews 13.5 warns us, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is God enough for you? Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. And we preachers use this quote Every time greed comes up in a sermon, but it's too good not to. It's perfect. John D. Rockefeller, richest man in the world a century ago when he was asked by a reporter, how much money, John, is enough? He said, just a little more. And that's true of everyone who chases riches. Bible promises you will never be satisfied with the money you're chasing. You will always need just a little more. But if, like Abram, your hope lies not in the things of this world, but in the world to come, you will be truly blessed. Verses 14 through 18 here. After Lot leaves, God instructs Abram now in verses 14 and 15 to lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. And then in verses 16 and 17, God reaffirms his blessed promise over Abram from last week of land. I will give the land to you and family. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And once again, Abram responds with yet more worship. He builds another altar, this time in Hebron. Proverbs 22.9 promises, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, says God, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, that verse in particular has been ripped out of context and abused by preachers of the so-called prosperity gospel, false gospel, as a proof text for the idea that God is like the stock market, right? If you sow your seed of faith and just send in, mail in that $50 donation right now, you can expect an extra $500 in your bank account next month. How we got from God promising 
that there will be no more need to pastors flying around the world in their own private jets. I'm not sure, but here's what God does promise. He promises to bless those who entrust their riches, the money that he has blessed you with in the first place, back to God. If you give it back to God, you will be doubly blessed in your giving. He doesn't say $500. Never promises that. In fact, God doesn't even promise in Malachi 3 to refill their barns. You may end up with less in the bank, with less in the barn than you had before you gave. We don't give to God to get more money back. It might be a bad investment for you financially from a worldly standpoint, but there will be no need, he promises, and moreover, he promises treasures in heaven. You're storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But for Lot, his money made him irresponsible, We turn to chapter 14. We get this long story of this battle between four kings from the northeast versus five kings of much smaller territories around Canaan. I'm not going to try and go back and re-pronounce all their names again, but I will show you a map here, and I will let Hughes once again explain it for us. He says, Sodom was part of this group of five cities located at the southern end of the Dead Sea. You see those five tiny little dots You can barely make out. Zoom in on your screen. Those five tiny little green dots, that's the the coalition of these five cities around the Dead Sea, which have been paying tribute for 12 years now to a coalition of four kings from the north and east. See those four giant red-shaded regions? And so these five Dead Sea kings, we hear, rebelled, provoking invasion by the eastern coalition. Now, as you can see, these are massive kingdoms. And so by the time they move in and make their way down to Sodom, we hear they've already defeated the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, these tribes comprised of giants, according to biblical lore, possibly descended from the Nephilim back in Genesis chapter 6. Not to mention the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. They have basically conquered and subdued the entire fertile crescent. Everything between their four kingdoms all the way down to Egypt there. And so the last line of defense against them, last domino to fall, was this tiny coalition of five small godless cities. And that is who Lot throws his lot in with. In fact, the timeline here suggests that Lot probably knew before he even moved to Sodom that the city was late, overdue on its rent payments, and was in for some serious trouble soon, but Lot's desire for riches makes him irrational, makes him irresponsible, reckless. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, do not toil to acquire wealth. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. And that's exactly what happens here to Lot. Almost as soon as he arrives in Sodom, he's carried off in poverty in exile. 1 Timothy 6, again, warns us, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierce themselves with many pangs. And that is the real danger, friends. Money can lead you into far worse exile than physical exile in a foreign land. How about spiritual exile, right? Estrangement from God, wandering away from the faith, Paul tells us. See, Money itself isn't the root of all evil. That's another verse that gets misquoted. It's the love of money that's the problem. Do you love money? Do you chase after it? Do you cling to it? Or do you view it like Abram does with open hands as a resource that can empower you to serve others? What does Abram do after he hears the news in verse 13 of Lot's capture? Does he say, I told you so. I tried to warn you about that godless Sodom. No. Abram puts his small fortune to work and equips and mobilizes his trained men, 318 of them, to mount an attack on these evil Axis powers. We read, he went in pursuit as far as Dan, he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants defeated them, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram led a tiny militia of 318 men, 120 miles, so that he could pick a fight with the four global superpowers of the ancient world, all to rescue his greedy, contentious, irresponsible nephew. Why? Because greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, for his nephew. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35. Do you and I view the resources, friends, that God has given us, entrusted to us. Remember, we aren't owners. We are merely stewards. We are temporary tenants. Do we treat it as mine? I use them however I want, or are they God's? To be used through me for accomplishing his purposes in the world. Does money enable us to be selfish or empower us to be selfless? That's the question. Paul's words in Philippians 2 apply to our finances as much as they do anything else. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Because if you don't, then money will become blinding. It became blinding to Lot. If we skip ahead to chapter 19, we discover that after all of this, losing it all in exile, slavery, Lot doesn't learn his lesson because just five chapters later, we hear Lot was sitting by the gate of Sodom. Whereas Abram learned from his failure in Egypt and he repented and he turned back to worship the Lord. As soon as Abram liberates Lot, what does he do? He crawls right back to Sodom. And we're going to find out in a few weeks how that works out for him and for his salty wife. Friends, the love of money 
will blind you to what is really important in life, to just how fleeting material things really are. James 5, 1 through 5 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. You've laid up treasure in the last days. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. you fattened your hearts in for, the, for the day of slaughter. And Lot is like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God says you are spiritually broke. So Jesus ponders for us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Chasing material wealth, friends, is a terrible eternal investment. You cannot take it with you. Instead, and in closing, we ought to be like Abram, who allows his riches to paradoxically make him even more dependent on the Lord. End of chapter 14, this exchange between Abram and Melchizedek and verses 17 to 24, is so fascinating. And we don't have time to mine it for all of its riches. I preached a sermon on Hebrews chapter 7 a couple years ago here that you might want to go check out. But all I want you to see this morning is Abram's response, his submission to the Lord. He recognizes Melchizedek here as not only the king of Salem, but as a priest of the Most High God. He's the first priest in all of Scripture. And really, he's the first prophet as well because he prophetically proclaims here a blessing from God. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high. And so you've got all three Old Testament roles, king, prophet, priest, coming together here in the person of Melchizedek. Some commentators even take this and interpret it, this, this enigmatic encounter as a Christophany a rare Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. But whether you interpret it that way or not, Abram's response is to offer Melchizedek the first ever tithe in history. In verse 20, we hear Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Tithing, returning back to God one-tenth of what he has so generously given you as a way of practically acknowledging that what you have is not your own, that it all belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 5010. Uh, uh, he says, the world and its fullness are mine. And so we're called, Proverbs 3, 9, to honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. But it's tithing, 10%. It's also a way of making sure that you are blessing others through your resources. Remember, that is what God has called Abram and us to. He, he, he blesses us to be a blessing to others. Genesis 12, that was his calling to Abram. Matthew 28, I'm sending you out, right, to make disciples of all nations, to be a blessing of all nations. So if I said to you, hey, I want to bless you, 
here's a check for $1,000, and all I ask is that you use just a fraction of it to bless someone else. Would it be unreasonable for me to expect that you would give, say, $100 of it away to someone else? It's a matter of the heart. And whether we make $1,000 a year or $100,000 a year, because once again, the statistics show that if you don't trust God with a little, you will not trust him with a lot. The highest percentage givers across churches. Not gross, but percentage, right? I don't see who gives what here at West Hills, so I'm not making a comment on West Hills. But in general, I can show you the statistics that those who make more give less. Why? Because friends, earthly riches are dangerous. They're dangerous. If you are not careful, they will leave you contentious, greedy, irresponsible, and blind. It's possible. It's possible that wealth can make you worshipful, generous, blessed, servant-hearted, and dependent on the Lord. But here's the thing. It will never happen on your own. Left to our own sinful devices, you and I, 100% of the time, will be corrupted by money. We need a better Abram. We need more than just an example, just a model. We need someone to set us free from sin and empower us to be generous. We need a better Abram who traded all the treasures of heaven for a filthy manger and a life of suffering who generously gave up his own body, his precious blood, poured out for us to take our sins and give us generously his righteousness so that we might inherit all the riches of heaven and eternal life. We need a savior who wouldn't just march 120 miles to take on four global superpowers for us, but who would go to the cross to take on death itself for us. And praise God, friends, we have just such a Savior, a generous, servant-hearted Savior. But if you are not dependent on him, if you are not trusting in Jesus, you will never manage your money. It will always manage you. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, plain and simple. So I ask you this morning, friends, which will you serve? Let's pray.